You can tell a lot about a person by dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? You can tell a lot about a person by... I've heard it said you can tell a lot about a person by their hands, how callous, shape, smooth they are, whatever. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they treat animals. I've heard that being said. Tell a lot, of person, a lot about a person by the clothes they wear. Actually, a recent study at the University of Kansas reckons you really can tell a lot about a person by the shoes they wear. Uh, they found that people could accurately guess about 90% of the time what a person's personality was like based on their shoes. <laughs> Colourful shoes reflect extroverts. Um, probably no surprise there. Practical and functional shoes generally belong to agreeable people. Uh, ankle boot people have aggressive personalities. Uncomfortable-looking shoes tend to be worn by calm personalities and people who are worried about their relationships generally have brand-new shoes. It's going to make for an interesting morning tea, isn't it? We're... Everyone's going to be walking around with their heads down. You can tell a lot about a person by... Well, there's probably quite a few things we could fill in at the end of that. Today's Bible passage is all about, you can tell a lot about God by the way he rescues people. And in particular, within the context of Isaiah, it's you can tell a lot about God from the way he's going to rescue Israel from Babylon. Because remember, last Sunday, that's what God said he was going to do. God told Israel that because of their sin, a future time of captivity in Babylon is coming, but because they're so precious to him, he's not going to abandon them there. He will rescue them. He will redeem them, was the word he used. He even hinted that another empire, the Persian Empire, was going to be used to achieve that. Well, in this morning's section of Isaiah, God is continuing on in that vein, telling Israel that he's going to rescue them, and the way he will rescue them is actually going to show them a great deal about the sort of God that he is. Now, we only just read uh, a little bit of chapter 44 in our reading, but we're actually looking at a bigger section in the book, all the way from chapter 44 through to chapter 48. Now, what holds this whole section together is the opening phrase of the first verse in our reading. So here's our first verse that in our reading, verse 24. And look at that opening phrase. This is what the Lord says. Now, that phrase pops up over and over and over again in chapters 44 right through to 48. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord... It, it's what ties in all these chapters because all the chapters are about this is what the Lord is saying about what they can tell about him from the way he's going to rescue them. And as it turns out, uh, three things about God in particular stand out. All three of them are in that first verse of our reading. And so chapter 44 verse 24 turns out to be not a bad summary verse for all these chapters. So what's going to happen this morning is that we're going to notice these three things about God that you can tell from the way he's going to rescue them from Babylon. We're going to notice all three of them in that verse in particular. And in each case, we're going to span out and see how it gets fleshed out in the surrounding chapters. So first thing you can tell about God by the way he's going to rescue Israel from Babylon is that he is the sole God. In other words, he's the one and only God. And you can see that in this summary verse. 
Let's read it, look at it again. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Now, you notice the exclusiveness of that verse. It's not I am a Lord, it's I am the Lord. And in case you missed that one, it's who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Get the point? No one else was involved. No one else helped. The God of Israel did it all by himself. There are no other gods. Now, how does that get shown by the way he will rescue them from Babylon? Well, it's actually building on what we saw last week. Remember that court scene where God led in Israel as his witnesses and they were witnesses that he was God because of the way he was going to, the fact that he would rescue them and that he would predict it ahead of time and God lay out that challenge of which other God could do that? Name another God capable of pulling off this rescue. I'm the only one who's capable of that. Well, this week, that's the point that's well and truly being hammered, uh, hammered away at. No other God is capable of rescuing them than in the way that he will, because there is no other God. And in our summary verse, if that's not plain enough, check out some of the surrounding verses. If you've got your Bible open, and I hope you have, just look into the next chapter, chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Verse 6. There is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 14, surely God is with you and there is no other, there is no other God. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour, there is none but me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you get the feeling God's wanting to tell us something here? Are you getting this, it is unambiguous And it is often stated, there is only one God. And please don't think that this is sort of somehow primitive Old Testament stuff, but then Jesus comes along and it's all love and inclusive and all pathways lead to the same God. Nothing could be further than the truth. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus is equally emphatic. That famous verse, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, I don't need to tell you that that's not a popular idea nowadays. Our culture is into the notion that all gods are equal and all religions are the same and it doesn't really matter what you believe, it doesn't really matter what you centre your life on. As long as you're sincere, as long as it works for you, that's okay. Friends, that's a lie. It matters immensely what you believe. It matters immensely what you centre your life on because you can get it seriously wrong about God. There is only one true God and there are lots of false ones out there. It's politically incorrect, but the Bible is unambiguous. And that doesn't, of course, mean that we don't treat people from other religions with dignity and respect and love and care of course we do but let's let's not let, let's let's not go down the foolishness of thinking that all religions are equal they're not you can tell a lot about god by the way he rescues israel in isaiah and he wants us to be able to tell that he is the one and only sole god 
You can also tell he's a sovereign God. Look again at our memory verse. Uh, sorry, our summary verse. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God made all things. Not some things, all things. From the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy. Every single thing made by God. This lectern, this microphone, this building, you, me, our mum and dad, our kids, all made by God. And because he made all things, he owns all things. He rules all things. He controls all things. And again, how exactly does God's rescue of Israel from Babylon show us that he's sovereign? Well, it's through his control of events that brings about this rescue. And in particular, one of the ways that the surrounding chapters really emphasize this sovereign control of God is the fact that he's going to raise up a king of Persia called Cyrus to save Israel by conquering Babylon and then releasing Israel. Cyrus got mentioned in our verse, um, uh, in our reading this morning, down in verse 26, where God says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will accomplish all that I please. He keeps talking about Cyrus into the next chapter, chapter 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. God's going to use this king of Persia called Cyrus to achieve his ends. And you've got to remember, this is all being said years before this person Cyrus was even born. It's being said at a time when even Persia didn't look like becoming the world power that it would become. And yet such is the sovereign control of God in this world that he predicts it and then he does it. And he even does it with a pagan king, Cyrus of Persia. How sovereign is God that so as to fulfill his promises and his purposes, he's going to use a person who isn't even born yet, and even once he is born, this is a person who won't even believe in him. It's very impressive. Mind you, for poor old Israel, they're a little bit um, peeved by this because they don't like the idea of a pagan king saving them. Uh, They don't like... uh, the idea of God using someone who's not a Jew to save them. Well, God sort of foresees that reaction. And so look at what he says in the next chapter, chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the works of my hands? It's I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. Now you see what God's saying there? He's sovereign over everything and to those who don't like it to those who don't agree with the way he's going to go about doing things God basically says deal with it because I'm God and you're not 
And telling me what I should do is like a clay pot telling a potter how to make it. It's just a silly idea. God made and controls everything. And, you know, again, like the idea of there being only one true God, the idea of God being in full control over absolutely everything, it's not a popular one either. Even amongst some Christians, this idea of God's sovereignty tends to get watered down all the time. And so, for example, people don't like the idea of God predestining people, electing people, choosing people to be Christians, even though these are things that seem to be unambiguously talked about in the Bible. People react against that. They they don't like that level of sovereignty of God. Another way you see it is this false idea that God sort of created the world, and that's okay, but then he sort of has stepped back from it since then, that God sort of wound up the clock at the beginning and now it's all running by itself, but every now and then he sort of sticks his fingers in the mechanism and does something unusual, but usually he stays out of it. And people tend to fall back on that sort of idea to explain why bad things happen in the world, that God is somehow involved when good things happen, but that God is not so involved when bad things happen. Friends, God doesn't let us get away with that sort of diminishing of his sovereign control. Woe to us who quarrel with our maker, because he's very clear. For example, look at this one on the the screen that he says in chapter 45. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all things. The Lord alone is God and there is no other and he controls everything. Absolutely everything. Which could be a little scary, really. I mean, if you think about it, there's only one true God and he made and owns and controls everything. Well, what if we ignore him? What if we follow a false God? What if we rub him the wrong way by rebelling against him and giving him the silent treatment? What if we mess with the all-powerful God? That will put us in a world of trouble and no amount of hiding is going to get us to escape from him. Sounds a bit bleak except for the third thing you can tell about God by the way he rescues Israel. Because by rescuing Israel, you can obviously tell that he's a God who rescues people. More than that, he likes rescuing people. He's a saving God. And back in our summary verse... It's actually the very first thing we're told. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer. Now we thought about that word redeem last week. It means to rescue, to buy out of trouble, to save. And it's a word that takes us to the very heart of God. He loves to save people. He wants to save people. And so repeatedly throughout these chapters, God is referred to as a saviour. Repeatedly we're told that God is a saviour God. So much so that God's plan to save Israel from Babylon is actually part of a bigger plan. A bigger plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Look, for example, at this verse on the screen. Chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. They are wonderful words to hear on the lips of the one and only sovereign God. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. God likes saving people. He wants to save people. Now, of course, the greatest demonstration of God being a saving God is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. 
that God is so dedicated to the ends of the earth being saved that he sent his own precious son to redeem us from sin, to swap places with us so that the cross, the punishment we deserve for our sin, our greed, our self-indulgence, our arrogance, our rebellion, that punishment was unloaded in full onto Jesus instead of onto us. So we've got the chance to have things put right between us and the one and only sovereign God of all the universe. It's extraordinary the lengths that God would go to to save people. You can tell a lot about God by the way he rescues Israel. You can tell that he's the one and only God. You can tell that he is the sovereign God who controls absolutely everything. And you can tell that he's a saving God who will stop at nothing so as to rescue his people. Now, friends, none of those things about God are hard to follow, really. None of those things are particularly complicated. It's not rocket science this morning. All those things are pretty clear in the text. The bottom line is getting it straight in our minds that these are all things about God that matter. Okay, Christianity is not a game. These are things about God that are truly important. And some of them might be unpopular and definitely some of them might be politically incorrect, but they matter enormously. And these are all things about God that should be shaping the way we live and the conversations we have. Because, you see, we live in a culture, we live in a country where we just enjoy amazing freedom and freedom of choice. I was in Woolies the other day. In the biscuit aisle, I counted 348 different types of biscuits to choose from. I was there for ages. We have this amazing level of choice, and we tend to like it that way, don't we? It's it's nice not having to eat milk arrowroot biscuits all the time. A a nice vovo, a Tim Tam every now and then, that's good. And we tend to carry that sort of thinking over, over into things to do with God. And we seem to have this... I don't know, we think that someone choosing their religion is about as important as choosing the biscuit that they eat. Whatever they choose, that's okay. It's their preference. It's your personal choice. I don't want to impose. Just like, you know, not everyone has to eat ice favos. It doesn't really matter that not everyone follows the same God. Friends, it matters enormously. It actually matters that your friends aren't Christians. It actually matters that there are those people in your life who you care about. It matters that they're not following Jesus. It matters that so often we are are just so complacent about telling people about Jesus or taking an opportunity to, to, to bring them to events or share books with them. Because, friends, what if what if in the biscuit aisle with 348 varieties, what if 347 of them all had poison in them? And there was only one biscuit on the shelf that was safe. Suddenly, your choice becomes very, very critical. And wouldn't you be on the phone to your friends? Wouldn't you be on Facebook then urging them which one to choose? Friends, there's only one true sovereign God. And when you get it wrong about him, you're in a world of trouble. The good news is that he is also a saviour God. 
I hope you're not keeping that piece of information a secret. I'll pray. Father, we want to thank you for who you are. Thank you that we don't have to guess about you because of Jesus, that you are the one true God controlling all things, that you controlled our lives so that we would get to hear about you. And Father, we thank you most of all that you love saving people. You did not even withhold your son so that people might come to you and able to be forgiven. Father, we pray that you would use us in your sovereign plan to bring more and more men and women, boys and girls, into your kingdom, please. Amen.